Hi there and welcome. I'm Rachel Nemeth and this is The Frontline, a series of conversations with founders, CEOs, and operators building great businesses that employ a large frontline workforce, employees who don't sit at a desk. I'm the CEO of Opus, where we believe we need to build more bold and accessible technology for frontline teams. This series is about the people who keep our businesses humming and the operators who are taking innovative steps with their frontline. You can find more episodes at thefrontline.so. In this episode, I sat down with Jessamine Waldman Rodriguez. Jessamine is the managing director of Danny Meyer's Daily Provisions, an all-day cafe and bakery with four locations and growing in New York City. She's also the founder and served as the CEO of Hot Bread Kitchen, a social enterprise that trains low-income and immigrant women in culinary and professional skills, as well as HBK Incubates, a small business incubator that assists entrepreneurs in opening culinary businesses. I sat down with Jessamine to chat about the state of the industry, what's next in frontline training, and what she's doing at Daily Provisions to trailblaze in the new era of work. My name is Jessamine Waldman Rodriguez, and I'm the Managing Director at Daily Provisions here at Union Square Hospitality Group. Welcome, Jessamine. We're so excited to talk to you and welcome you to the front line. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, So we're going to start off this podcast with the same question we ask everyone, which is, how would your family describe what you do for a living? And then we'll (laughs) dig right in. (laughs) So when you ask that question, I first go to my children because they're the family that uh, take up the most of my focus and time. And they say that I have that I sell donuts for a living, which <laughs> makes me a very popular it's mom. <laughs> um, and I think to the rest of my family, they really, uh, you know, speak about me as a, a business leader and a, a, a people-focused leader. And I feel like I had the privilege of seeing you in a different position years ago when we met at Hot Bread Kitchen and you took a chance on me, <laughs> uh, which is why the the first question I really wanted to dig into is something that I know uh, is important to you and equally important to us at Opus, which is talking about the world of work and specifically the work of deskless or frontline workers. Yeah. And even though they're the the majority of the workforce globally and nationally, um, I'm curious to hear what aspect of frontline or deskless work you want to debunk. What's the one thing that people Mm. don't understand about this position or this type of work? Yeah. It's such a good question. I agree. We both come at the work that we do and have for the past 10, 15 years, Um, I think trying to bring dignity and skills to um, the work that we do with the deskless. I have never used the term deskless workforce, but I think it's such a a powerful way to speak around the um, hundreds and hundreds of people in in my organization that do the work of creating incredible uh, guest experiences for the the people that we know. Um, You know, I think at the core, what what we did at Hopred really spoke to it at its core, which was how do we help um, people who have skill and passion in the culinary arts leverage that skill for financial um, empowerment or to make more money. And that was really at the core of it. So, you know, I think 
deskless is such a great term because it gives us a powerful way to move away from this idea of unskilled mm. workers. Um, and I think what I, you know, there is nothing more difficult than working uh, peak service at Daily Provisions. It is hard work. Um, it is talented work. It requires a withitness, a quickness, a, an agility, um, creativity, uh, all of that to do the kind of work that it takes to keep our businesses going. Mm. And so I think if I would uh, want people to understand one thing, it's really uh, um, that the, the work of our food service is highly skilled and requires training and compensation, <laughs> fair compensation. Yeah. Um, and uh, in doing so, in, when you train people well, when you treat people well, when you compensate them fairly, it is a great winning value business proposition. Mm. Does that and make sense? It does. And, and I think when you're talking about um, something that resonated with me about what you just said was around this notion of needing to debunk the term unskill or low skill yeah. or upskill, <laughs> yeah. anything that has to do with anything besides just skill yeah, um, to classify individuals who are working. Who are doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Different sk differently skilled, right? Yeah. Like, you know, in all of the jobs that we do, you require lots of different levels of, of skill, but there's nobody that works for us that is low skilled in the job that they do. Yeah. And that's what makes them valuable to us and that's what makes our businesses successful. And it's almost like the way I sometimes think about it in order to check what kind of language to use is would somebody be comfortable referring to themselves as that? And mm -hmm. who, who in the world of deskless work or frontline work would say, I need to upskill today? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm waking up with the goal of upskilling. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's training. Um, yeah. So it's education. Right. And growth and financial opportunity. Yeah. So you started to talk a little bit about the food industry. So I want to dig specifically more into food service. Um, there are countless challenges we can speak about when mm -hmm. it comes to the food service industry in the world of work right now. Uh, what's the biggest challenge that you see in frontline or deskless work in the food industry? For employees. Yeah. The question that I ask myself and the reason why I do what I do is how do we help find the space in this industry for um, dignified living, <laughs> meeting the basic necessities um, on the salaries that we're able to pay? Mm -hmm. And so if I had to name it right now in New York City, it's a workforce that is highly in demand right now. Businesses are having a really hard time hiring. Um, and simultaneously, there's a strong cap given the pricing models that our customers are used to in what wages get get frozen at and and the ability to bring in enough people to invest enough in training to make those jobs a growth trajectory towards financial empowerment 
while keeping you know the prices where they are is just creates I think a really difficult um, situation for employees there so mm-hmm. over time we have seen you know more employees who are struggling with um, uh, you know with homelessness childcare is a challenge now there are so many pressures on the workforce that that we have and at the same time they are in a you know they're highly in demand which is a a labor economics phenomenon that is very unique to this moment yeah supply is not meeting demand but prices for labor have not increased and i think my I, my thought is that this is a very particular moment that we are in and prices will for 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 labor and prices for commodities will have to readjust to compensate for the moment that we're in. Yeah, I, we're hearing this a lot from employers is this is about um, something different than what we saw before COVID. And uh, so when it comes to um, I guess, for lack of a better term, the, the well, the demands of the, the individuals who are seeking work. It would be interesting to hear what sort of strategies or tactics DP is doing in order to engage those individuals. What is it that sets DP apart from other <laughs> food establishments and helps attract some of that talent through your front door? So I think we have been blessed. You never want to say this because when it happens, I mean, we are still a very small but growing business that has had the benefit over time of of strong retention, especially when we comp against our peers in this industry. And I think three things really do that. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, um, we have competitive benefits. So, um, you know, uh, paid parental leave, paid vacations, obviously sick days is, is the minimum, um, you know, a relatively competitive healthcare plan. So I think comping against other places in the industry, USHG offers good benefits, which has helped daily provisions, but that's not enough to keep people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's gravy. Uh, we, I, ensure that managers are hired for managerial prowess not just knowledge of food nor knowledge of service and so how do we continue to um, promote and hire people who have the right heart and um, commitment that I do to ensuring that every employee is treated with um, dignity and respect and Mm. the humanity that they deserve Um, And, you know, the third thing, and I think this has been something that we've adopted and adjusted to, and it has not been my approach throughout my career, but we have have had to and we do offer flexibility to people, which is really incredibly important. Yeah. You know, I think we're able to attract and retain workforce because managers are able to make nuanced decisions around scheduling and offer a certain amount of flexibility, which is all too often absent in this industry it is an art (laughs) and and requires you know um a mature leader who's able to exercise sound judgment in those things but i historically i would say we've done that well and have seen it in our employee retention yeah um you know 
small things, but they're big things, you know, fully paid staff meal, like seems like a given. Um, and then in the fine dining industry, it is, but we, we up to a certain point, we're charging for that. And it feels like such a nominal amount and mm-hmm. the ability to give that to people, especially when people are facing going home to, um, you know, food insecurity, it feels like a really important thing to do. So yeah. there's so much more that I would love to be able to do. Um, but I think those are like, you know, at least three of the pillars to trying to um, retain and attract and fairly compensate the workforce that we have. And something you were you mentioned, which I wanted to touch upon a little bit more, is the, the notion of childcare. And <gasps> it's and I know it's something that it's a topic that's important to you. It's something that um, I think specifically with COVID, we sort of underestimated how important not only parental leave is, but also uh, and family leave, but also just providing flexi- flexibility to help uh, parents and caregivers pick up their kid from school or yeah. whatever needs to happen in order to care for someone else. Yeah. It is so hard. I'm, I'm so curious. I don't know if I can ask questions back to you, but I'm so <laughs> curious what you have seen that works well for the deskless workforce yeah. because it is, you know, short of flexibility. There is, an, you know, there, there, it is really hard when people don't have school-age kids and then when you have school-age kids, somebody's are always getting sick. So yeah. um, it's something here at USHG that we are working on. There's a work group on it and I'm struggling for good answers. Um, You know, personally with, you know, uh, two working parents in my household and two, you know, solid earners, we have, you know, a lot of childcare redundancy and still struggle with it. Yeah. And I have so much empathy, you know, really the only formal thing that we offer is I know who the parents are on staff and I always make a point of checking in with them and trying to extend a little bit more charitable assumption to those people who I know are racing through a shift to get on the subway that will inevitably break down to (laughs) get to a childcare destination. It is a really, really tough... To not have to pay a fee for taking To not have to pay, oh yeah, Yeah. or or worse, you know, not knowing where, when the after school ends, what happens, or, you know, relying on friends to pick up their kids. It's really hard to thrive as a parent without having incredible childcare. And that has been so true. Like, I can't... My babysitter is 1,000% the MVP in my household <laughs> through COVID. Like, we would have never got through this year. Um, so, unfortunately, and I, I'm, you know, I follow the conversation closely, I, short of a really significant government investment in this, and I think, you know, a 3K is a is a great start, but it's like three or four hours of childcare a day that parents with three-year-olds are getting in New York City. So the addition of that is very significant. It's a great investment the city is making, but we need overnight daycares. We need late day childcare options. Right. We need, you know, uh, community childcare at, at Hopred. You know, I was really 
we we tried to help with co-op setup of co-op-led childcare in different communities, and those initiatives are incredible. Where you know, one one person takes shifts. Like I, right. I think that those options are amazing, and I've looked at them over the years, and I've never seen them scale, or I've never seen them thrive because they require a high level of administrative detail. And listen, like. There's no job that anybody in the world works that is going to supersede the needs of their child. There's right. no working parent that whose job is more important. And so when when push comes to shove, if that child care isn't a hundred percent or not nothing's hundred percent risk free, but unless your perception is is that it's on lock in terms of safety, security, educative. Um, content, right? Like, unless you know that your kid is thriving there, you, you can't go to work. Right. People people try, but that's not a sustainable solution. Um, well, I think it's also, you know, there's all of, there's like the just logistical challenges. There's the challenge of uh, pay if you have to. There's um, the, just like the balance in general between three, four, six, seven humans in your personal network to navigate. On the employer side, it always seemed to me that one big missing piece is not only providing flexibility, it's also training managers in that that level of understanding that's required. It's almost like implicit bias training. Yeah to say you have to kind of shed that feeling like, oh, this person isn't being honest with me. It's like, no, yeah, <laughs> this is happening and it's happening every day yeah. in every minute of your employee's brain. They're yeah. thinking about. It's running in the backtrack of yeah. their brain always. And there is, I have obviously, well, not, not obviously, I have a huge amount of empathy for that, but I agree. Sure. I think I never knew how complicated it could be. And as my kids get older and I see them go through different stages of need, it gives me, because, you know, when you have babies, you're like, well, once I have toddlers, <laughs> it'll get easy. <laughs> and then you have toddlers and you're like, well, once I have five-year-olds, like they're in kinder, it'll be easy. And at each stage, I'm like, oh my God, like so much empathy for the parents with tweens mm. who are coming and working a 10 hour shift at daily provisions and worried about what their kids are doing after school. Mm. Like, you know, each stage, stage the empathy grows um and you know and 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 it's it's not just working parents it's caregivers across the spectrum you know there's a there's a a woman who i'm thinking about who works for us who has a sister and she was the primary caregiver of her little sister throughout covid and didn't come back to work really like delayed her own earning and career development um and now came back as a barista once the kids new york city schools went back to full time Mm. you know a a woman in her early 20s who's carrying that weight of her you know i checked in with her the other day and her daughter or her her sister just graduated from fifth grade and she was telling me that they wouldn't let siblings in to the fifth grade graduation so the parents went but you know this this young woman had been her her, her sister, her caregiver, her fifth grade teacher through nearly the whole year and had really sacrificed, you know, coming back to earn and move yeah. out on her own to take care of her sister. So it's, you know, it's across the board. I am optimistic. I heard that in New York City, and I don't know how many of your listeners are New York based, but probably a fair number, um, that they're extending after school care 
the public schools will have longer daycare because mm-hmm. that's like a really hard problem. Schools yeah. end it too. And so everybody talks about nursery school, you know, in, in early childhood. But I, I do think that there's a huge win in making universal after school care available to six o'clock for parents. I think yeah. that would make a big win. I know a lot of families at the school that I'm at had to opt out of this particular public school and they put their kids into parochial or private school because there was an after school offered now in a post-COVID world. Mm. So there's so many, it's such a complicated problem. It it just makes me think too about that whole notion of like school gets out at two and then you just sort of pause for a minute and think about, wait a minute, that's literally in the middle of lunch service. (laughs) It's in the middle of lunch service and it's a million children in New York City. Like think about all the like free problems out in the universe starting at two o'clock. Right, exactly. Right, and my brain changes. My brain changes at two o'clock. You know, I'm I live in Queens, and so I'm in Manhattan at two o five, being like, "Well, I'm, she always does show up," and I'm like, "Okay, I hope you know the babysitter's there." I wonder if I hope nobody breaks her arm in the playground. Like the the back tape of parenthood <laughs> clicks in in a different way at two o'clock when mm-hmm. I know that they're out. You know fully supervised by a wonderful human but you know when they're out of my purview and the teacher's preview it just takes up brain space in a very different way mm. and, and and it's a million kids literally yeah. a million kids. i did not know i mean it doesn't surprise me but yeah, yeah school food feeds a million kids wow a day in new york city so i want to shift gears a little bit and uh you know, we've talked about career development, we've talked about childcare, we've talked about deskless work in general. Uh, one of the things that probably shouldn't come as a surprise that's near and dear to our hearts at Opus is, is training. Yeah. Um, but I want to um, get kind of the flip side. I'm not gonna ask the question that everyone asks, which is what do you love about training employees? But yeah. I want to hear from you what do you want to tell the training industry? What are we not getting right? I mean, I don't even, I, other than you, Rachel, I'm like, who else is in the training <laughs> industry? There's <laughs> so much need. This has yeah. to get easier. Yeah. I, I, okay, so I think a few things that I think make this a difficult problem in this industry. Mm-hmm. One, Every operation thinks that they're so different. And you've helped me you've helped me learn this. You're like, Jessamine, everybody cleans a mop the same way. I was like, all right, everybody. No, no, it has to be this way. Everybody slices beef on a slicer the same way. But like it makes it really hard. I think to call it even an industry because there's so much individualization that happens in it. Mm-hmm. And so the the big guys, the, the big multi-chain restaurants, I think have it down. They have a dedicated team that just does this and they're willing and able to pick up all of the kind of normalized stuff and then all the nuances, all the limited time offers of, of operations and just integrate it in. And I've seen some beautiful stuff, I mean, um, uh, like Applebee's training materials, they, they're incredible. They have like, you know, digital 
fly-ins mm. of sandwiches and you're like where do you put the lettuce on the bread side or on the on the meat side right That's like cool. they just have these really cool interactive materials that would completely wow you but that's years <laughs> and teams and teams of people that do it well and so right. I think the first challenge to you know air quoting because you can't see it air quoting this even call it an industry is that like it's so such a huge problem to put your arm around because everybody thinks they're doing it differently and those who can figure out what the similarities are will win because I think that there's a huge mm. win in that um, I think that's one big takeaway for me. Um, the time on shift, time on training, time on leading is always... So I'm going to say this a different way. I think another thing we have to learn in, that I've learned, you know, throughout throughout my career doing this is just like, you know, time is money and people are short-term in their incentivization. And so really creating ways to make training time efficient mm. in the short term for those long-term wins is is whoever figures that out will be the winner. Yeah. <laughs> because um, day-to-day managers, shift leads are making very short-term decisions around how to use the limited resources that they have that they need to get through service. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, an hour becomes an an insurmountable (laughs) amount of time when you're just trying to get through service. And so, you know, I'm at the top of this organization jumping up and down being like, no, 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 I just need you to adopt these materials. I just need you day one through three to spend two hours with a new employee and show them how to do it right so that we don't continue to do it wrong Mm. forever. You know, and that person, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And then when it comes down to it in the moment, like you got it, they they have to, we're asking them to prioritize short term return on revenue over, you know, the um, the long term investment in yeah. training. So it's really hard um, in small food organization and most of us are small you know small food most restaurants most people working in this industry are in small business small businesses yeah how do you make the time and the priority to get this stuff done one of the things that we always say is um you know and we look at hundreds and hundreds of training materials that employers have the problem isn't content, it's distribution. Yeah. It continues to be, how can you create a solution that can um, support the first three days of really heavy front-loaded knowledge that, and then that next phase of training, which is how can I best ensure that you're up to speed on your station or on your location? And then there's the career growth and career yeah. development. And it continues, the, the training that I see in every organization just is mind blowing. It's so thoughtful. Yeah. And the vision. And is you there. know how much has gone into it. <laughs> I do because I've been there. You've been there. But but I can see in every yeah. interaction, it's it continues to be, which is why we've invested so much in this. The 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 technology at Opus yeah. is around how can you strategize? Okay, I'm a GM. 
and I really just need you to do this one lesson. Yeah. Because <laughs> I need to track it and make sure everyone's yeah. good and locked in so we can discuss it at stand-up. Um, or the use case of, um, you know, Jessamine is a barista but wants to be a line cook. What can we do in order to situate her well so that she can have some some pre-training or some ongoing training so that we can talk with her in six weeks and say, okay, like let's let's see if you feel ready. Let's do a shadow now. Yeah. Um, I think you know. that's such a good and important breakdown. And like, honestly, what happens in those first three days, I think there's a lot of emphasis on it. It's really hard. It's hard to crack, but it's that ongoing learning. Yeah. And we do like, you know, my, my team works a lot with those lineup notes and we push out through our, you know, our HR app. Like there's a lot of pieces that we do with it, but people learn in so many different ways in so many different languages. And like you really, to get something done well and consistently, you cannot say it enough I always say to my leaders I'm like you cannot say it enough you cannot say enough you have to say it you have to do it you have to write it you have to disseminate it in every possible way um and that's just hard yeah and you know we operate we have staff in the business from 4 a.m to 11 p.m so there's you know there's people that never meet that are doing very similar jobs very differently (laughs) right like the variance between the 6 a.m person doing x and the the same x task done by person at 8 p.m it's probably night and day well and something you just said i think i would expand upon which is that yes everyone learns differently and yes everyone teaches differently too so (laughs) so like who's the person who and and the the dialogue based training is so important and should never go away but how do you also ensure consistency among those individuals so that the 4 a.m baker is getting the same information as the 12 p.m baker yeah and and like to state the obvious to that as a follow-up like we don't hire for teachers Mm. Yeah. We hire for cooks, we hire for baristas, we hire for all of those things. And teaching is an art that, mm. you know, some people are blessed with having and some people don't. Yeah. And so how do we come up with a model that we can grow and replicate without having to hire for teachers? Because <laughs> those are that's a whole other thing. That's I've a whole other been thing. there. <laughs> we've known, we've tried to hire teachers together and they're very hard, it's hard to, to find. find. They're very for, hard to for find. For your specific, um, you know, it's funny because like the irony is that you and we do preach this a lot at Opus, which is, you know, 80 percent of the training that restaurants are doing or arguably the food industry is doing is pretty much the same across all units. Yeah. But that last 20 percent, that's the part that is really important to latch on to yeah. and make sure that you're making it your own. And it's hard to find instructors who can really understand the nuances from you know, DP Upper West Side and DP 19th Street. Yeah. And like, who's the customer at this place versus that place? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. You're listening to The Frontline, a podcast by Opus. 80% of U.S. workers are frontline, people who don't sit at a desk. Yet 99% of technology is built for the people who do. Opus helps employers deliver fast, interactive training to their workforce over text message. But it doesn't stop there. At Opus, we're on a mission to build the world's most accessible platform for frontline teams. You can learn more at opus.so. 
So as we're wrapping up, I want to dig in a little bit more on you. Yeah. Uh, if you had an extra $10 million of budget, no red tape, what would you spend it on now and why? So if I had $10 million of extra budget, there, what would I do for daily provisions? Um, first and foremost... I think I would invest in this childcare question. And I don't know what the answer, I I would invest in the the problem that we're seeing across the board with retaining and attracting women who wanna grow in this organization. It's been something that I've seen throughout my career and I would love to think about an innovative way to make it easier and possible for women to grow in this company and men, but we see it predominantly with young women dropping out of the workforce. And I'd love to think of ways, I'd love to take 2 million of that and pilot something in New York City for deskless workforce Mm. that that I think could work. I don't know what it would be, but I think $2 million in the short term, we could think up something um, really creative. And I, it would be a strategic investment in the growth of the business because I know that it would allow us to attract and retain mm, right. a, a workforce that we would otherwise would would be sort of out of our out of our reach, and I think it's also the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and then I think this is probably a boring answer, but I would open more stores. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a boring we answer. We are we are a we are you know we. Our, we have two locations and we're opening two more this summer and I the more I open the more I know that this is a a, a wonderful thing to bring to a neighborhood and yeah. so I'm really eager to ex- expand and bring more around New well, York City. we all know New you're on to something at DP so. <laughs> there's, some, there's something special about it so if, if I had but I don't I would definitely hmm. look at more locations i thought i thought it was either going to be that or a new oven since ovens well, are always y- there you know rachel <laughs> that's after you, when you started saying that i was like and also we are doing a really awkward dance and where we bake bread downtown and we make sauces uptown and there's a lot of logistics and operational challenges to that so maybe the the smartest business decision would be to invest in a new bake shop <laughs> In a place where we could have a beautiful store as well. Mm, yeah. Um, not to say that there isn't already great equipment at DP. I just always think about that always being the one the piece of equipment that, <laughs> or the one area yeah. of the bakery. That. I think last week I did point at the oven to somebody and was like, that's our bottle. But <laughs> we're not there yet. But yes. Um, so you've touched them on so many really interesting points. I have known you long enough to know how innovative you are and entrepreneurial <laughs> and you're business minded, you're socially minded, you're growth minded. Um, who or what do you credit your professional growth to and how has that person or thing impacted the way that you see the world of work? I'm going to answer this question in a roundabout way. When I started Hot Bread Kitchen, I did it because I had an idea that was insatiable and it felt like the right thing to do, right? I knew there was a problem. 
and I wanted to solve it. Women were not getting good jobs in industry and there was talent being wasted and I saw an opportunity to find a market opportunity to solve that kind of social inequity. Um, and so I started Hot Bread Kitchen and grew it and, you know, in, in, in that process met all kinds of incredible people. I, and before that, I would never have self-identified as an entrepreneur. My career was in something very, very different. I worked in education and I worked in, you know, public, public entities and my entrepreneurialism was probably a liability, not an asset. <laughs> and somewhere, and especially once I made the decision to leave Hot Bread and thought about what I wanted to do next, I was like, who, you know, asked myself and had a great coach. I was like, what, who, who am I as a professional? Who am I in my professional world? And I think the one piece of it for me that is, you know, like so crystal clear right now. And, and even here in an entrepreneur at Union Square Hospitality Group, which is such an entrepreneurial organization led by the most, you know, incredible, successful entrepreneur in the world, one of them in the world, you know, Danny, I think. Um, I still come, you know, continue to prove that I'm amongst the more entrepreneurial people in in this team and in this industry. So I ask myself a lot, like, where does this entrepreneurialism come from? My, my father was a teacher, my mother was a professor, um, didn't study business in school, wasn't entrepreneurial at all, um, but also have a very entrepreneurial and successful entrepreneurial brother mm. as well. So there is something, you know, the being an entrepreneur encompasses so much, you know, like we were talking about, you need to be able to do your own sound mixing. You need to be a, <laughs> you know, you need to be a marketer. You need to, especially when we run businesses at the scale that you and I have run them, it, it is a jack of all trades. Mm. And I think the, the, to like really distill what it means to be an entrepreneur, it means that you like have to love solving problems. Yeah. Um, and I think that came from, you know, parents who weren't entrepreneurs, but probably asked good questions of us. Mm. Um, it has to come from a certain resilience and uh, 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 like willingness to like bang your head against the wall <laughs> is like, I think, implicit in being an entrepreneur. I can relate. <laughs> Regardless of what industry, you really have to be willing to like wake up every day and just go back at that problem even in ways that seems intractable um and i think that comes with you know having lived you know just had been had hard things happen in life and lived through them and come out on the other end standing and it's just I guess a learned skill and an optimism and then I think the third thing about being an entrepreneur for me and in this industry but probably across the board is that like you have to love people mm -hmm. and I and I do like I just the, the fun part of it for me is the people part it's leading it's inspiring it's learning from um you know the 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 day-to-day -day of this job is a riot because I work with and I, you know, get the have the honor of leading a really incredible group of people every day that drives me and, and thrives for me and a, a feeling of 
responsibility and indebtedness to those that I lead. You know, we talk a lot here about servant leadership, um, but I really feel that and I, and I wear that, I think, and I think it makes me a better entrepreneur because I do, mm. because no organization is anything other than a collection of humans just doing their best. And so knowing that, knowing that, that being a core truth to what I do is like then knowing that I love those people and I'm here to make sure that their, hopefully their lives are, are meaningful and powerful gives me a, a purpose every day, which I think is important. Mm. I appreciate you saying that around like the people aspect. I feel like it's something that gets overlooked when you talk about entrepreneurism. Yeah. And it's such an important, and it, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like some of what you're saying is it's not just, it's not about you have to be a great manager. It's about you have to just have this really deep love for other humans and care about solving problems that help other humans move forward in life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think it's, you know, I think you, it's not about caring to get the best out of people. It's really caring enough about people to do the hard work of investing when you're not getting the best and yeah. helping to understand what people need to do their job well. And I do firmly believe that that makes for great businesses. Yes. Well, let's uh, finish up here with our rapid fire. Yes. Uh, so, just tell us the first thing off the top of your head. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no gushes. <laughs> uh, favorite book. Okay, so uh, favorite book this month. I just finished Deacon King Kong, uh, and it was incredible. Hilarious, light, relevant, incredible, incredible book. Uh, guilty pleasure song. So the best thing about having a tween is that I'm forced to listen to a lot of pop. And so I would have otherwise never dignified, uh, but we're listening to a lot of Dua Lipa right now. And I'm so grateful for my daughter for insisting on it all the time. So I'm gonna say Dua Lipa levitating. You're my um, co-founder will love that you just said that. Uh, love it. Favorite breakfast spot. <laughs> I feel like this is a tea up here, Rachel. Uh, if you, I'm not just saying this because I'm the managing director of Daily Provisions. We have two locations in New York. No. Uh, really, really breakfast at Daily Provisions on a like like sunny. It is now the power breakfast near Union Square. You come by on a weekday, and the food is incredible, and I absolutely love it. Um, as a as a backup, I live in Forest Hills and there's a great bakery called Boulange. And so when I'm not working and I'm at home, we go to this lovely neighborhood bakery and I love a great neighborhood bakery and they mm. make really good vinoiserie. So daily provisions, 100%, the bacon, egg and cheese sandwich is a work of art, but um, sometimes I don't eat at work. <laughs> then I go to Boulange. I promise that was not a leading question. <laughs> no, I, I loved it. <laughs> My favorite question. Um, a woman who you admire. Hmm. Um, can I say you? Because I'm so, I love <laughs> no. what you work on. Because <laughs> you're sitting right here. And just in general, I'm so impressed with how you get your job done and the business that you have built. And so I really admire the work that you do. And I'm so happy that we continue to get to work together Likewise. after all of these, after all of these years. It's an incredible, it's an incredible feeling to 
see what you've done. I feel a real sense of like ownership and love <laughs> over it, even though I have none of either. Well, lots of love, but no ownership. Well, but the feeling, <laughs> the feeling is mutual for sure. And yeah. I feel like I, I learned from you, especially in those hot bread kitchen years. So yeah, the, we, the drive is there. We're doing it together. It's awesome. Um, other women that I admire. So many. That question always like, like catches me because you know um there really is no lack of women that i admire in my life you know my grandmother it's like such a, a corny answer but she was such an important leader and was a woman who you know born in the 20s and sold insurance until the new millennium and got dressed fancy every day for work and had three kids and was just somebody who didn't take no for an answer and uh, didn't get along with everybody but I have a lot of respect for her and probably take home, take take uh, take after her in more ways than one so to finish up favorite class you've ever taken yes uh, I love that question I had two but now I just want to think of I'm just thinking of one so in my undergraduate I took a class called Science and Society, which was all about the science of food. Oh, interesting. It was really a botany class. Hmm. It was it was like botany and anthropology. Hmm. And I should have stopped right there and like dug down <laughs> and learned more about it because it was so, so absolutely fascinating. Um, and it was a really great teacher and there was a lab class in it and we got to look at seeds and mm. old seeds. And so it was a really, really helpful class at the University of British Columbia. It was great. And then um, in graduate school, uh, it wasn't my favorite class, but I think my lucky stars every day that I took it, but I took it, I took accounting and finance mm. and uh, it has served me incredibly well. If my graduate degree in public administration, which was really focused on government affairs, uh, my accounting is the class, like my <laughs> all-star class. And I really did actually enjoy it. And maybe it gave me, or it probably gave me a lot of confidence to take a more business mm. route in, in my career. Yeah. I like that answer, <laughs> and I can appreciate that. Yeah, um, Jessamine, it was amazing sitting across from you. I know, I know so we've fun. had so many of these talks, but it's nice to get it in in front of in a mic. mic. I can't <laughs> wait to see you edit it. But thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And how can people learn more about or visit Daily Provisions? Tell us where to find you. Uh, so Daily Provisions, we have two locations in New York City. We're on Gold Belly. We're on Gold Belly. Uh, so Daily Provisions, we have uh, two locations in New York City, one uh, near Union Square, another one on the Upper West Side, and opening summer of 2021, one in the West Village and um, near Hudson Yards in Manhattan West, um, Midtown West. Um, and then we ship nationally through Gold Belly as well, so you can get our cookies on the West Coast. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, I know you have your work cut out for you for the next two locations, so best of luck and thank you again for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rachel Nemeth. Thanks for listening to The Frontline, a podcast by Opus. Learn more about us at opus.so. See you next time.